I have this thing I do with my kids when I leave them alone at home. It's probably not appropriate, but it's fun. When I, when I uh, walk out the door, I, I look at one of them, particularly, it's what, typically it's one of the younger ones, and I will say to them, you're in charge. And the older ones will tend to ignore me, but then there's some uh, in the house who will get frustrated because they were not entrusted with the power of authority in the house. They're looking for the power in the house. And before all craziness breaks loose, I settle, settle it by picking one of the older, older, more mature kids to call the shots in the house. But, but it is fun for a moment to imagine one of my younger kids, say Winston, who's seven, to be given the power to decide the bedtimes and to uh, organize the dinner cleanup and to basically be in charge all evening. It is fun to imagine that for a moment. But I'm sure he would love to have that power. Who among us does not want to have power? We want to have power. We want to have power over our circumstances. We want to have power over our kids if we've got them. We want to have power over our finances if we've got those. We want to have power over our enemies. And looking around the room, I'm sure I can see some of you definitely have enemies. And I'm sure that you want power over them, right? We want power over our situations and our circumstances. And more than anything, studies say we want power over ourselves. We want power of autonomy. And when we've got power, we feel like that's a good thing. That's a good thing. It's, uh, we can identify with He-Man from Masters of the Universe. Remember, remember that guy when he would grab his, his uh, lightning-possessed sword and he would, he would shout out to anyone who would hear, I have the power. That's right. And who, I mean, think about how confident he is having that haircut. Of course, he would feel that confident about having all that power. Turn to your neighbor and say, I have the power. That's right, I have the power. I don't know if your neighbor believes you, but you can try and convince him. Who among us doesn't want power, especially if we've already tasted it? Like in the Matrix, when the oracle answers Neo after he asks her what his enemy wants, she replies, what do all men with power want? More power. Today, as we continue our teaching series in Ecclesiastes, we will look at the writer's observations of power, how the abuse of power, how the pursuit of power, and how our reliance upon power are yet simply more reminders of how meaningless this life is from his perspective. I've titled this message Power Trips because we're going to observe a few different ways power is played out in our interactions with one another. As we journey through what Ecclesiastes has to say about power, our goal is to come alongside the teacher here in this chapter and see what he sees and consider what he is saying. Who among us wants power over our lives? And yet at the same time, who among us has seen power abused? Who has tried to acquire power in, with prideful ways? Who has trusted the powers of this world to make life better? And after all of it, who among us has come up empty? I would imagine that most of us, if not all of us, would say that in those pursuits we frequently come up 
empty. I think we will all agree what, with what the teacher has to say. I think we will agree that, uh, that what he is saying, that we will have a better understanding of how we relate to power. And I believe that our relationship to power reveals what we think is possible in the world around us. Our relationship to power reveals what we think is possible in the world around us. And I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But I want you to think about that. Our relationship to power reveals what we think is possible in the world around us. If you have not turned to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I encourage you to do that. You can find that uh, book after Psalms and Proverbs. Psalms is the biggest book in the Bible. So if you just turn a few pages after that, you'll be in Ecclesiastes. You can also follow along in our, on the YouVersion app, on our Pathway app, and uh, in the sermon outline that you received in the Pathway notes. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. And before we continue, my name is Jason, and I want to welcome you. And I'm glad that you've given me the opportunity to continue on in this series. And I want to welcome those who are watching online and watching in our classic venue and watching on our Moon campus as well. I'm grateful for the opportunity that we get to spend time in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 today. Now, as I said before, the writer of Ecclesiastes is observing how power, the abuse of it, the pursuit of it and the reliance upon it are even more reminders of how this life is meaningless. These power trips are additional proof that his life and all he's observed about it feels like a meaningless endeavor. So let's start in verse 1 of chapter 4. Again, I looked... Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and how they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no comforter. The first observation here in chapter 4 is the peril of the powerless. Once again, using the phrase under the sun, we see an observation of abused power, or to put it another way, power that abuses. His focus is not on the oppressors, but those who are oppressed. Those who don't have the power on their side. They are oppressed and they have no one to comfort them. If the writer is trying to say something about God behind his back, he's doing it right in front of his face. No one to comfort them, he says. It feels kind of like a subtweet. You know what that is if you're on Twitter? If you're on Twitter? Subtweet is basically a way to tweet to someone or at someone without actually mentioning their name. But there's a pretty good idea who the tweet is about. It kind of feels like a subtweet here. The writer of Ecclesiastes talking about how there's no one to comfort those who are oppressed. Does he know that God is right there? Does he know that God can do that? If the writer is trying to say something about God, he's, and God not notice, he's not doing it well. But what he's saying is this, the oppressed have no one to comfort them. The slave has no one to free them. The abused have no one to rescue them. The marginalized have no one to identify with them. The weak have no one to support them. The tearful have no one to empathize with them. The oppressed have no one to comfort them. And yet he makes no mention that God could comfort the, the oppressed like the Psalms talk about. And yet 
he offers no suggestion that good people could and do, could and should do something about it, like the prophets talk about. What he's saying just doesn't even seem very biblical, and yet it is very much relatable. We've all seen oppression take place in the world around us, in our nation, both in our past and in our present. And we've probably wondered, when we've read the stories, when we've seen the images, when we've seen the pictures, we've probably wondered, where is God in this? Why doesn't God do something about this? Why don't the good people step in and do something? Why are the oppressed not getting the help that they need, we might wonder? The comfort they desire, the opportunities they deserve. Why are those down in their luck routinely taken advantage of by those with more power? Why doesn't God do something about this? Why don't good people step in and do something? The teacher sees the injustice of no one coming alongside the oppressed. And his response, I'll be honest, is rather dark. So as I read these next verses, you might want to hold on to the armrest of your chair or maybe to the person next to you if you know who they are. Verse 2 says this, And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. Verse 3, But better than both, is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. This is also the peril of the powerless and a hopeless solution to their situation. And yet that's kind of the point, right? Have you ever seen someone who experienced misfortune from day one because of the surroundings they were raised in, the negative influences they grew up with? and the oppression that they experienced. You might see that and lament. You might wonder, why, what, did they, what did they do to deserve that? I bet they wish they were never even born so they didn't have to experience that. And just the thought says something about how we think about power. And just the thought reveals something about us. And just the thought identifies us with the suffering of the teacher here in Ecclesiastes. He's seen the injustice. He's seen how the oppressed received no comfort. And he wishes for them that they had never seen the evil done under the sun, the peril of the powerless. Let's look at the next power trip, verse 4. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless a chasing after the wind. The second power trip we see is the pull of the power trap. The teacher once again sees the meaninglessness of pursuing status and significance, especially when it is driven by envy. Envy is that emotion that it's different than jealousy. Envy is that emotion when you see what someone else has and you want it and you don't want them to have it. Envy is that idea of me saying that I ought to have what you have, and you shouldn't have it. Envy is toxic, and it is a pull in each one of us. Each one of us has the possibility of being envious towards others. And yet we see and we know it is a meaningless pursuit. It is chasing after the wind, the writer says. 
Another way of understanding that phrase, chasing the wind, uh, is this idea of herding the wind. And I like that picture. I think it's a great picture of what this, this pursuit looks like. Think about the envious pursuit of, of what of that looks like. Trying to get the right look, the right amount of money, the reputation, the followers, the influence. It's all herding after the wind. It's also slippery ground as well. The psalmist understood this when he was observing the people around him. People that weren't even good, experiencing more success than him. He says this in Psalm 73, As for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Giving in to envy is like trying to herd the wind in the middle of a muddy, slippery field. That kind of pursuit will likely leave you all alone, face down in the middle of the mud, with not a vapor of wind in your hands to show your effort. It's the pole of the power trap. And this is why he says it's meaningless, which like the first power trip we can identify with. We see this play out in the lives of others and sometimes even in our own. And then the teacher tries to offer a remedy, first by finding rest to this problem and then by finding relationships. Verse 5, fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. These are two extremes. You could keep chasing after the power, laboring till both your hands are full of meaningless. Or you could sit around all day possessing the power to do nothing. Ruining yourself, or as some translations say, eating your own flesh which is a really gross and violent way to describe self-destruction. But in the middle of that power struggle is, an, is another option. It's not folded hands of laziness. It's not two hands filled with empty labor. It's a handful of quietness, rest, and contentment. And don't we all desire to be content don't we all long for the quietness? And yet even as he says this, this is not a cure for the meaningless life that he's talking about. But it's something. If meaninglessness was a bad case of the common cold, this advice is like a really good cough drop. It's not the cure, but it helps. Then the writer begins to go off a bit on this power trap and how too often we tend to go at life alone. Look at verse 7. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end in his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling, he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless, a miserable business. The teacher paints a bleak picture of someone who is clearly successful, at least as far as acquiring wealth is concerned. Someone who is, possesses the ability to enjoy themselves, enjoy life, and yet has deprived himself of doing so. So he is left empty and alone. 
And we're not told why he's alone. We don't know if he was, uh, you know, a single, uh, if he was, if his parent, if he's the only child in his family. We don't know if he just didn't start a family or maybe he had all of that and he lost it because of his endless pursuit for more. It's probably based, based on what is said, it's probably the latter. Him losing what he had because of his pursuit for more. But however he got there, whatever his backstory is, his madness for more is described as a miserable business, the teacher says. There is something extra miserable if your work and toil and striving is in life is not even able to be shared with someone else. If the teacher tried to offer a remedy before by encouraging rest and quietness, he now offers one by encouraging relationships. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who fail, falls and has no one to help them. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Verse 12, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. What he's saying here is the companion will help you profit in your work. They can help you up if you fall. A companion can keep you warm and will defend you even better than one companion, he says. You should go for two. A cord of three strands is not easily, not quickly broken, he says. Yes, life is meaningless, he would say, but you can at least find someone with whom you can share the burden. Find someone who can help you resist the pull of the power trap. Again, this is not the ultimate cure. This is not the answer, but at least it's some clean air to breathe. And now we get to the third power trip. And we see how it contributes to the meaninglessness of life. Are you excited? Verse 13. Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to heed a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. The last power trip is the passing on of the powerful. The passing on of the powerful. These verses say that if, if you have an old foolish king who won't listen to any advice and who doesn't listen to any of his, his advisors, then it's better to have a poor wise kid take his place. This kid could come straight from prison. He could come right from the streets of poverty. Either way, if he's wise, he's a better option. He's a better option than the foolish king who won't take any advice. And just when you think the teacher has this opportunity to leave it all alone and say that you will be able to find meaning in life with a young, good, wise king. He keeps thinking. And he keeps writing about what he keeps seeing. Verse 15. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. Basically what he's saying there is there was no end to his followers. But those who came later we're not pleased with the successor. This 
Two is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. He says the whole, the whole idea of kingship is meaningless. For kings come and go, and so do their followers. The new wise king will eventually become a fool in the eyes of the people. And the people themselves are almost always fickle. They will change their loyalty. That's why the passing on of the powerful is just another power trip that contributes to the meaninglessness of life from the teacher's perspective. Power, the abuse of it, the pursuit of it, the reliance upon it, all these things, they don't give us the answer. They just contribute to the problem. After all this, we have no final remedy. The teacher doesn't give us final solutions to our problems because he hasn't found them. He does not ultimately answer our questions because that's not the point. Too often in our lives, we want to get to the answers. We want to try and find solutions. And yet, that's completely understandable. That's how we're wired. As chapter 3 earlier says in Ecclesiastes, that the business of God, of trying to find purpose and meaning, that's the business of God that has become a burden, continually a burden to man. The teacher says. And even though that we're wired to search for these answers, even though we're, we desire to, to find the solutions to this, this problem of, of, of life feeling meaningless, like, like the teacher says, the reality is the solutions don't always come. The answers are not always there. A lot of times we're left wondering. A lot of times we're left questioning a lot of times we're left doubting, just like the writer of Ecclesiastes. The remedies he has offered are like cough drops and some clean air to breathe. But he has not offered the cure. And it's not clear that he has even found it himself. And this is where our power struggle comes in. Because I believe that Ecclesiastes is a gift for those of us who suffer these questions. I believe it is a gift for those of us who wonder at times, or maybe constantly, why all of this matters. I believe that Ecclesiastes is comfortable asking the questions and having the doubts about the meaning of life. And if Ecclesiastes is comfortable, so is God. And the crazy thing is, is that God is the one under the microscope in these verses and in these chapters. We want to find answers. We want to find solutions. We want to find comfort in phrases like, it's the Lord's will or everything happens for a reason. We want to turn the page to the next thing. But Ecclesiastes won't let us do that. It invites us to share in the suffering. And so our power struggle is to spend less time turning the page and more time partnering in the tension. And here's the deal, and I think this is really important. For when we can identify with the words 
of the one who suffers on these pages, then we can better empathize with the one who suffers in our presence. When we can identify with the words of the one who suffers on these pages, then we can better empathize with the one who suffers in our presence. I believe that we are called to live in that tension and to share in that suffering. And as much as I want to leave you here today with that tension, and I do hope that you will consider that as you look at Ecclesiastes and see how the teacher is leading us in that direction. I, who, I do hope that you, that, you, that you live in that power struggle. I do want to, to brighten the mood. I mean, we've been talking a lot, of, uh, a lot, a lot about meaninglessness and, and this, this challenge of, of finding purpose in the point. So I want to brighten the mood. So I brought up some balloons here. The teacher in Ecclesiastes will bring up lots of different things. We're only in chapter 4, for goodness sake. And it's not going to slow down. I mean, he's going to continue to offer up these all these observations, all the things that he sees under the sun. And I hope this is brightening your mood. I really do. And, and we have the opportunity to share in those observations. We have the opportunity to share in that suffering. I really wish this would have brightened the mood a little bit more. And you're probably thinking to yourself, it's kind of meaningless that these balloons are just sitting on the ground. I mean, if you're going to try and have somewhat of a, you know, life, maybe it would be better if they were, they were, you know, up off the ground. And I wish that they could be. And I bet you understand me in my frustration that, that, that they're just sitting there. And they're not adding a lot. They're not bringing a lot. And, and you're probably frustrated like me. But you're probably also thinking to yourself, you know, you could have done something about that. You, you, could, have, you could have done something different. There is, an, there is an alternative to the balloons just sitting on the ground. And I know what you're thinking. It's, it's just something really simple. And I know that I know that you were thinking that. But I want to I illustrate something here. Is that I was frustrated about these balloons sitting on the ground. And you could identify with that frustration. I was not wrong. And yet at the same time, even though there was that tension, you also knew there was another way. There was another option. The balloons could have been filled with something else. It could have looked a lot more lively around here. The balloons could have been filled with helium. You identify with what I'm saying, but yet at the same time, you want to push back against what I'm saying. And I think that's what we're doing in Ecclesiastes. We identify with what the writer and the teacher is saying. We can understand how the things that he is seeing is making him feel depressed, discouraged, coming to conclusions that things are meaningless because we know exactly what he's, what he's saying. We've been there. We felt, we felt the same things. We've seen the same things. And yet we also know 
that there's an alternative, that there's a way to push back against what he is saying. I think Ecclesiastes, in the context of all of the Bible, invites us to push back against what it's saying. Think about the, just the power trips that we've looked at. Don't we look at those who are oppressed and hear what the writer is saying about how they have no one to comfort them, and we say, wait a second, you say that there's no one to comfort the powerless? I know of someone who can comfort the powerless. Don't we look at that and the, the, the power trip and, 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 and we see that by the Holy Spirit we can resist the pull, that envy and that pull of the power trap? Don't we look at that and say that actually the, the power of the Holy Spirit pushes against that? Don't we look at the power trip and we say, yes, kings and governments and presidents will rise and fall, but there is a king who will last forever and who will never fail and who really is all-powerful. Don't we look at the words that the writer of Ecclesiastes says that there is nothing new under the sun and say, wait a second, I serve a God who makes all things new. Our relationship to power reveals what we think is possible in the world around us. It just depends on what power you are relying on. I think Ecclesiastes invites us to live in the tension and be okay with it. I also think that Jesus invites us to push back on what we're being told in Ecclesiastes. And I think we can do both. I think we can live in that power struggle. I'd like to do one more thing, and it has nothing to do with balloons. When, when we were talking about starting this series in Ecclesiastes, um, like a lot of times, I will grab my guitar and see if I can maybe write a song that, that will work uh, with the teaching series that we're going to do. And sometimes that works, and sometimes it just fails. Um, I would like to sing a song for you now that I have been writing in my just study of Ecclesiastes. And it actually speaks to a lot of things that we are talking about tonight. Identifying with the meaninglessness of life, and yet also pushing back because of the God that we serve. So I'm going to play and sing this song. And even though I'm always singing songs and playing in front of you, this is still a little different. So I appreciate your patience. But this is a, a song that I wrote in response to Ecclesiastes. Never thought that I would walk away But I feel the same as yesterday I keep searching and searching and find that you're not here 
I keep hurting and hoping that you won't disappear. There is not a day my questions fade. There is not a doubt I haven't weighed. All the pressures are pushing my heart to question why. And the spinning in circles makes me not want to try. And they say nothing changes, and they say nothing's new, and this is true except for you. As long as I'm under the sun, I'll be here waiting for changes to come. When you speak, you make the mountains move. I know I can trust in the one who overcame death with resurrection. I believe you're making all things new. Wisdom outweighs our weapons of war. Joy will replace our madness for more. All the racing and chasing, the wind has left no doubt that the world we are facing has turned us inside out. So teach me a patience better than pride. My poverty waits for you to provide. In the night I can worry my life is all in vain. But the morning brings mercy that makes me new again. changes and they say nothing's new and this is true except for you as long as I'm under the sun I'll be here waiting for changes to come when you speak you make the mountains move I know I can trust you who overcame death with resurrection I believe you're making all things new in the kingdom of all things new is the power that's breaking through and the glory that's on the move every blessing from heaven it comes from you in the kingdom of all things new is the power that's breaking through and the glory that's on the moon every blessing from heaven it comes from you as long as i'm under the sun i'll be here waiting for changes to come when you speak you 
can trust in the one who overcame death with resurrection. I believe you're making all things new. And they say nothing changes and they say nothing's new and this is true except for you. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you. And we thank you for the chance to rest in you. We thank you that you are our hope, that you are our promise, that you are faithful and good. Lord, I also pray that we would be able to rest in that tension, to be able to share in the suffering so that we can be a people who know you better, so that we can be a people who know how to relate to one another better. Lord, we thank you for your time with us. We thank you that you have opened up our hearts. I pray that you would open us up now to just knowing you more and living for you. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us online today. If this week's message inspired you to go deeper, don't forget that fall is a great time to join a small group. We look forward to seeing you again soon on campus or online. Have a wonderful week, everyone.